All right, good morning. So glad you guys are here to join us this morning. Those of you watching online, glad you're here as well. We're in part six of a sermon series called The Movement. And if you're a guest with us, don't worry. If you're jumping in right on part six, it's okay. I can sum up the entire five messages this way. And that is every movement begins with a moment. Every movement begins with a moment. That's what we've been talking about the past five weeks. Even the simplest decisions that you make in life could spur some movement. And that movement is either going to take you closer to God or it's going to pull you further away from Him. So these weeks together, I've been challenging us to look through this book of Acts in your Bible and take a look at specific moments. And I've been challenging you to, to think about, could this be a moment in my life where, where movement can happen, where I can either get closer to God or maybe uh, you analyze yourself and you're just like, man, this is where I've been uh, getting pulled away further from God. So now how can I make some decisions that will help me get pushed closer to God? Really, in short, what we've been doing is reading through this book of Acts with the lenses of what moments here created movement. We're going to continue with that today. We're actually going to get through four chapters in the book of Acts. So settle in. It's going to take a little while, a couple hours, probably get through this. Okay. Totally kidding. If you're you're like, oh my gosh, is he serious? No, not serious. We'll read some bits and pieces, but uh, I'd encourage you on your way home or maybe when you're at home would probably be a better idea. uh, Read through what we uh, skipped. Okay. Yeah. Don't do that while driving. That being said, if you brought a Bible, I hope you did go ahead and grab it, open it up to the back, uh, back part of your Bible, a book called Acts. Uh, or if you got a phone, that's fine. Go ahead and open up your phone, get the Bible app out and click your way to Acts. You want the big number eight. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some free ones at the back. Go ahead and grab those on your way out. It's our gift to you. While you're getting there, let me kind of catch you up on what's been happening up until this point in Acts chapter 8. There's this guy named Jesus. He's been preaching and teaching for the past three years, doing signs, doing miracles, but he kept over and over claiming to be God. This angered the religious establishment because who are you to claim to be God? And so they killed him for it. But turns out he actually was God because three days later he rose from the dead like he promised to do. And that began this movement that is the capital C global church. All of us are in this room today because Jesus rose from the dead. Furthermore, we read in Acts chapter 1 that roughly 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent time with his disciples. And there's about 120 people who saw him ascend into heaven. And as he was doing that, he told them to wait for a helper, that he was going to send it to them. So we've got 120 people in Jerusalem waiting for this helper. Acts 2, this helper, the Holy Spirit, he shows up. Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people get to hear the good news that Jesus is the Son of God that he made a way for them to be reconciled to God because he's conquered both sin and death. He lived a sinless life, died a death that was meant for us, but he rose from the dead and therefore conquered sin and death. And because this Savior lives, they decide to trust him as the Lord of their life. This movement starts to erupt. Acts chapter 4, another 5,000 people hear this message. They trust in Jesus. They are saved. So now we're up to over 8,000 people in Jerusalem who trust in Jesus. 
But the religious establishment, again, they get angry because that's what they tend to do. They start arresting these apostles who are preaching about Jesus. Only problem is they seemingly can't keep them in jail. Angels keep uh, helping them escape, and so they just start killing them. That's what we saw last week in Acts chapter 7 with a guy named Stephen who gets stoned to death. So that's where we're at in Acts chapter 8. If they make us mad enough, we're going to kill them. If they're just trusting in Jesus, let's lock them up. Maybe we'll discourage this little rebellion. Okay, so let's pick it up in verse 1, Acts chapter 8. Here we go. And Saul approved of his Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, so time out. Again, the lenses that we're reading this book of Acts is that moments that start movements. And you can clearly see here in Acts 8, a movement has started in Jerusalem. The first eight chapters were contained there, 8,000 strong, but not moving outward. Yet you might recall Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So how did we get there? A guy named Saul starts persecuting the church. He starts arresting people. He starts uh, uh, killing people. We see Stephen literally get pelted with rocks until he dies. People run away. And that's the moment that the message begins to spread. The gospel was not spread by some great evangelistic preacher traveling the world. The gospel was spread because men and women were dragged from their homes. They were arrested, they were killed, they were tortured many times just because they trusted in Jesus. An important lesson to be learned here is the message of God cannot be stopped regardless of foe. Message will continue forever. The church always survives because the church isn't a building, it's not a location. We are the church. And we take the message with us wherever we go. The message goes wherever we go. And here's what I want you to write down today. Only one point, four chapters, only one point in the message today. Here it is. You were not only saved from something, you were saved for something. You were not just saved from something, which is the punishment of your sins. You were also saved for something. What is that for something? We're going to chat about that today, but let's keep reading. Back to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip was one of them. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For out of many who had, oh, sorry, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Okay, a couple interesting facts here in this section. First of all, who is Philip? Well, we know from Acts 8, 1, that he wasn't an apostle. Remember, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, yet Philip left. He went down to Samaria. And so here's why that's important, because Philip is nobody important. He just was obedient to the call God had on his life, which means the first time the message leaves Jerusalem, the first time the gospel is heralded by anybody outside these city walls, it's, it's heralded by an ordinary guy 
a disciple who just tried to be obedient with his life. And notice what it says there. Crowds heard his message and they saw the signs that he did. It's a both and. It's hearing and seeing. Perhaps you've heard that old phrase, preach the gospel when necessary, use words, but it's clearly quite necessary to use your words. In fact, Romans ten fourteen says, how can they hear if someone doesn't tell them? Rhetorical question. They can't. You have to use your words and your deeds. In other words, our call as Christians is to speak about and show the love of Jesus to the people around us. Now, people are always quick to point out, well, Pastor Philip did signs, right? I can't do any signs. I, I mean, I got this like this card trick with four jacks and you can bring it to the top. It's, I mean, that's about it. That's all I got for signs. What am I supposed to do? Well, I want you to think about something. What do signs do? Signs point you to somewhere else. They point people to something. They direct you somewhere. Wichita, eight miles. McDonald's, next left. Cracker Barrel, right over there. Okay, that's what signs do. They point people in a different place. So, how can you do signs? You can point people to someone else. You can point people to Jesus. That's the sign that you need to do. How so? Look at the last verse. So, there was much joy in that city. The gospel always leads to joy. The good news of Jesus always leads to joy. Not necessarily happiness or material blessing, but rather joy. And there's a huge difference. So you weren't just saved from something, you were saved for something. And one of the things you were saved for was to bring joy. Let me say it a different way. God's not trying to keep anything from you. He's trying to push you into fullness of joy. He's trying to lead you to joy. I think one of the huge misconceptions around Christianity and, and Christians specifically is that we're no fun. You ever heard that before? Man, there's just no fun anymore. What happened to you? Well, what's sad is, in a lot of cases, they're probably right. I know a lot of Christians who really aren't fun, but it shouldn't be that way. Joy should be found in your life, yet here's the problem. Because sin is also fun. Sin can be very fun. I remember, uh, in fact, going to a youth group one time and hearing this old uh, country kind of pastor, and he said, remember, boys, sin ain't no fun. And I, in my mind, was thinking, you ain't doing it right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Come with me this weekend. I can show you some fun there, guy. Dude, you know what I'm saying? But that's absurd. Listen. The difference between the fun that sin has for you and the fun that God has for you is joy. There's always joy in God. There's always a joy in lining yourself up with how God designed the world to work. The sin that fun or the, the fun that sin has for you, it always leads to heartbreak, despair, regret, broken relationships, sometimes all three. But joy in God, it always leads to a sense of fulfillment when you're living the way God designed the world to work. God's joy leads to restored relationships, fullness of life. No matter what you're going through, there's just something about you that, that, that sparks joy. That's the difference between the fun that 
sin has for you and the fun that God has for you. See, Philip, who leaves Jerusalem, it's important to understand that he's a Jew. He goes to Samaria, the town that hates Jews. Don't miss that. There's years of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews would literally travel a full day's journey up and around Samaria so they wouldn't have to cross through it. And the Samaritans used to rob and pillage them because of that. And so, There's importance in this idea that Jews and Samaritans hate one another. There's no love lost between them. And follow me, there's much joy in that city because of a Jew in their town. This is racial reconciliation on a massive scale. See, the good news of Jesus, when people hear and see, it creates creates unity and joy. Philip understood God didn't just save me from something. He saved me for something. I'm going to be obedient to that call. So let me ask you, is your life marked by joy? Or is it marked by an ever ongoing, never ending cycle of trying to find fun? I don't know. But I hope it's the former and not the latter. That your life is marked by joy. Skip down to verse 26, continuing with our boy Philip. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, go and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Now this is the passage of scripture that he was reading. Like a sheep who was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. What? That's in there. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. A couple things of importance here to note. First of all, You might be asking yourself, well, why did an Ethiopian travel 1,200 miles to worship in Jerusalem? Was it because they didn't have any gods in Ethiopia? No, we know from history they actually had hundreds of gods. They worshiped all kinds of different things. They worshiped animals. They worshiped plants. They worshiped different idols. So why Jerusalem? It's a long way, you know, even for an Ethiopian. And those brothers, God bless them, they love to run, but uh, 1,200 miles, that would still 
take like a couple hours, right? I mean, for them to get, I don't know, that was a joke, but I just saw one run like a marathon in two hours. Unbelievable. 1,200 miles. I don't know how long it takes. You do the math. Anyway, here's what we know. We know that he's reading Isaiah 50. Don't send me an email on that. I apologize. Okay. Isaiah 53. We know he's reading Isaiah 53, but perhaps he not only read Isaiah 53, he also read Isaiah 56 that says, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So perhaps he read that and he said, I want that. See, what you have to understand about eunuchs is they are men who have been castrated in order to serve the queen. And not all of them chose that life. Some of them, that life was chosen for them. So perhaps this man served the queen faithfully and diligently, yet he was heartbroken about his life circumstance because he could never have a family. He could never have a son that would carry on his name and his legacy. Yet in the midst of this heartbreak, he saw hope in Isaiah 56, a promise from God that says, come to my house. I'll give you a name that can't be cut off. Even though you can't have a family, God said, no, your name, it can live forever. And he saw that and he said, I've, I've got to go. I've got to find this hope. And so he gets the queen's blessing. He makes this long, arduous journey for 1,200 miles. He's thinking this could be it. I've got to get to this temple. I've got to meet this God. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he finds the temple. He's finally arrived, yet he sees a sign. And archaeology and Jewish history point this out as fact, that there's a sign outside the temple that says, no lame, no diseased, no blind, no eunuchs. So he, he finally gets there on this hope, and then he can't even get in. Can you imagine how soul-crushing that would be for this man? Made it all the way, 1,200 miles, thinking, man, God's going to give me a name that's going to last forever, but he's not even allowed to get in. So dejected, he climbs back into his chariot. He begins to wonder, did I miss something? Maybe there's something else. And so he starts flipping back through the book of Isaiah, looking for what he must do to meet this God, to have this name that lasts forever, to have this hope. And then boom, Philip arrives because God sent him. Follow me. God sent him for one man. One man. Have you thought about that before? Philip just brought peace and joy to an entire city in Samaria as a Jew in the midst of Samaritans. And God says, oh, hey, I need you to go talk to this one guy. By the way, it's in the desert. It's going to suck to get there. And I'm sure Philip was like, what do you mean? I just, I think I'm doing pretty awesome in this city here, boss. And he says, no, 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 I've got this one sheep. He's lost. I need you to chase after him. I need you to go get him. Listen to me closely. God has been seeking you just like he sought after the eunuch. For others of you, God has been preparing you just like he prepared Philip because you weren't just saved from something. You were saved for something. Plus, get this, the moment where God saved a eunuch, it actually became a movement. See, the, the Ethiopians that were with the eunuch, they witnessed their master get baptized. They, they witnessed two dudes get into the water, and then they witnessed one dude fly away, right? 
Superman hadn't even been born yet. Okay, so we don't, we don't know how this happened. It just happened. It's probably sparked some conversation that 1,200 miles home. How in the world did that happen? Where'd that brother go? And they began to ask questions. They began to speak to this eunuch, and this eunuch got to share the message about Jesus as well. And because of everything they saw and everything they experienced, they end up planting the first Christian church in Africa, in Ethiopia. How many lives are changed today because God stirred in one man to read a passage of Scripture? And that verse put him on a journey, and God used somebody else to alter the course of that journey. Again, moments that seem insignificant in your life, they could spark a movement. You have no idea how God's going to use you. So let me ask you a very important question. Whose life is dependent upon you being obedient? Whose life could you change? Are you praying for God to give you moments like Philip had where you encounter somebody and they're lost and they need hope and you have that hope and you get to share it with them? You get to share the good news of Jesus. You should be praying for that, and you need to learn how to act on it. But let's keep going. We're now in Acts chapter 9. A guy named Saul, the dude who stoned Stephen, he's back in the game. He's asked for permission to travel to Damascus. He's done persecuting in Jerusalem. He needs to go find these Christians that have run away from him. He wants to go find them and arrest them and probably kill them as well. And the Jewish high priest says, permission granted. Go do what you got to do. So off he goes, except on the way, Jesus blinds him with a bright light. He literally kicks him off his horse. He essentially asks, hey, what are you doing? Paul says, who are you? Jesus says, I'm the Lord. The one you're persecuting, and you need to knock it off. Go into Damascus and wait for further instructions. So blinded, he goes into Damascus. A guy named Judas's house on Straight Street. He just waits. God shows up to a prophet named Ananias, says, hey, there's a guy named Saul on Straight Street at Judas's house. I need you to go pray for him and heal him. Ananias does what you and I often do if you uh, feel like God's leading you somewhere. You begin to question God. He says, God, are you sure? I've heard about this Saul character. How about instead of praying for him, you shiv him or you know something like that because God, he's, he's really doing us damage. He's killed some of my friends. He begins to question God. How many of you have ever questioned God before? God, are you sure? Like, what are you talking about? I know I've been there many times, and if you think about it, it's kind of comical because God's never like, oh man, what was I thinking, you know? Thank me for you because I almost jammed us all up here, you know? I mean, that's, that's never God's response. God's always leading you and graciously points out that his way is better than our way. So Ananias, he reluctantly goes because, again, God saves you not just from something. He saves you for something. This is Ananias's moment. He, he goes, he prays for Saul. Saul changes his name to Paul. He goes on to be one of the greatest church planter, <coughs> planters in the world. He writes over two-thirds of our New Testament because, again, he wasn't saved from something. He was saved for something. Chapter 9, verse 19, it reads, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem 
of those who called upon this name, and has he not come here for this same purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He proved it. He didn't just believe it. He proved it. Look at your neighbor and say, I'll prove it to you. He proved it. Jesus was the Christ. Now, if you keep reading in chapter 9, you come across our boy Peter again. We don't have time to read this, but there's an interesting story about how Peter raises this uh, woman named Tabitha. It says her nickname was Dorcas. I mean, if you all know, just call me Tabby, right? I mean, that's a little rough, Dorcas. Tabitha, he raises Tabitha from the dead. The Holy Spirit has so empowered him. It's amazing. Then in chapter 10, Peter is introduced to this guy named Cornelius, an Italian. Long story short, Peter plays his part in the conversion of Cornelius. Now we don't just have a church in Africa and one in Jerusalem and one in Samaria. Now we're we're about to have a church in Italy, which is awesome, but I want to end our conversation this morning with chapter 12, because you weren't just saved from something, you were saved for something. Some of you are wondering, well, what was I saved for, Pastor? Because I can't do these signs or these wonders, I'm, I'm too old, I'm too physically inept, whatever it is, but let's start right in verse 1, because there's something else you can do. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's 40 guys. 40. Why so many? Because, again, they just can't seem to keep these brothers in prison intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, probably to kill him. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring them out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up, said, get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. Angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. He did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was having a dream. When they passed through the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together. And what were they doing? Praying. Earnest prayer was made for him. See that in verse 5. And then the correlation here between verse 12, many were gathered together. They were praying. What does that mean for you? It means you weren't just saved from something. You were saved for something, and you're for, it might be earnest prayer. The for that you need to be doing, it might not be public works like Peter or Philip or Paul. For some of you, it could be. But for others of you, your for might simply be prayer, earnestly seeking God on someone else's behalf. I think our natural tendency is 
Christians is to say, oh, I'll be praying for that, and yet we never do. But when's the last time you really knelt down and earnestly prayed and like fervently sought God that He would move on your behalf, that He would hear your voice? Because don't miss the miracle here. Peter had been rescued from prison before. People sought God, and He answered them. That's what got Peter out of prison. Miracle's not him escaping. Miracle is that God listened. The God of the universe was willing and able to hear these people who had gathered together and were praying. In other words, never think, well, I'm too old. I'm not physically able. I don't have any money, pastor. I can't contribute to the kingdom of God. Can you pray? Then your four isn't over. You weren't just saved from something, you were saved for something, and your four might be fervently praying for the church, this church, the leaders here. Your four might be fervently praying for this city and this state. Because I believe if we can change this city, then we'll change this state. If we can change this state, it's going to change a nation. If you change a nation, all of a sudden you can start changing a world. I believe my God's big enough to do that. Maybe I'm just crazy enough to to say that I want that to happen. I want to be part of that movement. And this could be our moment where we decide we're going to be part of a movement that's going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth because God told us to do that. And your four might be kneeling down day in and day out, fervently praying for those things. Might be gathering together a group of people to pray with you pray that God would move on your behalf and the behalf of the people who are lost because he wants to save them. It's on his mind. He's just asked you to play your part because you weren't saved from something only. You were also saved for something. Let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come here without the threat of persecution, danger, fear of being locked up and jailed as these men in Scripture were. God, we want you to move on our behalf. We want to play our part well. God, I just ask that you stir in people's hearts and lives right now. Tell them what their for is. Direct them. Can they be pointing people to Jesus by doing different signs, by speaking, by in their workplace, by doing different things? Do they need to be praying? What is there for, God? Because we believe you didn't just save us from something. You saved us for something. We want to be obedient to the call you've placed on our life. God, just ask that you help us each today as we leave. Give us us divine moments like Philip had with the eunuch. Give us opportunity to speak the glory of your name somewhere, somehow, by doing something. All for your glory. God, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't trusted, who's questioning, like the eunuch, who you are, you're listening to my voice. You can be like the eunuch. You can place your trust in Jesus simply by believing. I invite you to pray a prayer with me, not because there's magic in the prayer, but because you're ready just to surrender your life. You're going to articulate that in your own heart and mind. You say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've sinned not done what you want me to do. 
But I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Because of that, I can be made new. Thank you for saving me. Help me to live for you. If that was you, if you prayed that prayer this morning, I encourage you just to meet me back at Connection Corner. I got a Bible. I got a a what's next kit that I want to give you to help you on this journey of salvation to find out what your next steps really are. For the rest of you, find out your four. Start moving on somebody else's behalf. And everybody said, Amen.